Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigaloff, where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigaloff was either off-duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigaloff was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigaloff. Thank you so much for all the outpouring and all the listeners that have started. We have listeners in the United States, in Texas, California, Washington, Florida, Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina, Illinois, Ohio, Georgia, New York, Pennsylvania, Missouri, Michigan, Alabama, Wisconsin, Maryland, Maine, Hawaii, Virginia, Oregon, South Dakota, New Jersey, Minnesota, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Indiana, District of Columbia, Alaska, Idaho, Connecticut, Carolina, Louisiana, Utah, Massachusetts, Kansas, Rhode Island, New Mexico, Kentucky, Nevada, West Virginia, New Hampshire, Nebraska, Mississippi, Vermont, and Delaware. And to our friends up north in Canada, listeners in Alberta, Ontario, Saskatchewan, British Columbia. We also have listeners in Germany, New Zealand, Norway, France, Poland, United Kingdom, Slovenia, Japan, Ireland, Colombia, Switzerland, Australia in Western Australia, New South Wales, Queensland, and we even have one Russian listener. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate every single one of you. And last but certainly not the least is our one listener in the Bahamas. Thank you. Before we get started with today's episode, I'd like to invite Mark to give us a quick word. Mark? Hi, this is Mark. Here at After Hours, we like to draw strength from those who have come before us and lived through hard times. One of those individuals, Martin Luther King Jr., said, The time is always right to do what is right. And um, that quote to me uh, fits this time period we're living through perfectly. And now back to you at After Hours, Sam. God bless. Much love. Thank you, Mark. You will be in our hearts and prayers. Today we're going to talk about the current relevance of the Declaration of Independence. We're going to be talking about our brothers and sisters up north and all the support they're seeing. We support you too. We're going to talk about what it is to be meek and weak. They're different. Don't forget to check out Thomas Renz when he was talking on the Senate floor and the shocking news that he gives. We're going to get into encouraging our fellow man. Then lastly, we're going to get into chewing the fat. That's right. We're going to talk about what are the best foods to eat. Let's not waste any time. Let's not waste any more time and go ahead and get this started. We hold these truths to be self-evident, meaning they speak for themselves. They're obvious when you look at nature. That all men are created equal. And by men, they meant men, and women, and children, and born, and unborn. They meant everyone. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Meaning, that is the purpose of the government to maintain these rights, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, meaning you lose your rights of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and there are more, those are only a few. It is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and, very important word here, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed, 
will dictate that governments long established shall not be changed for light and transient causes. This means we're not changing it for little things. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms for which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is the right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Most of this audience knows where those words come from. Many from this audience have even sworn allegiance to uphold and defend the secondary document, the Constitution. However, there are people in other countries, such as Canada, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, Norway, France, Poland, United Kingdom, Slovenia, Japan, Ireland, Colombia, Switzerland, Bahamas. These words, they're written to you as well. And if you want them to have relevance in your life, you stand and you make the changes. Know that you're not standing alone. That's what they want you to think. They want to isolate you, separate you divide us. I was listening to a podcaster recently, and he talked about War of the Worlds. And in War of the Worlds, the aliens were winning until something small that they couldn't see, that they overlooked, took them out. It was a virus or a bacteria or something. They think we're small and insignificant. I assure you, we are not small nor insignificant, and they will all feel us soon. They'll feel our pressure. They'll feel us in the legal system. They'll understand that they can't push us around. I've seen videos recently of what's going on in Canada. And thank you, brothers and sisters to the north of us. Thank you, truckers, for standing. American truckers are standing as well. I even saw a video of horse and buggy, a line of horses and buggies. They were the, the Amish. For many of you across the world who may not know, the Amish do not use electricity and they don't use modern conveniences. They live as if it were the 1700s. And they are standing in solidarity with the Canadians. I'm standing in solidarity with you. This is how we fight for freedom in this modern era. It's not like they did in 1776. This is a legal fight. And everyone must stand. This past week, I had a conversation with a physician who is an instructor in various martial arts. And it was an interesting conversation. And we talked about some interesting points that I want to discuss with y'all. Jordan Peterson, he's written some books. I encourage you to go check him out. 12 Rules for Life and 12 More Rules for Life. But one of the things that he is often quoted saying and, and has said many times is a weak man is not a moral man. Men need to become monsters, become the absolute biggest and scariest thing they can become. And then when they restrain that, as many martial arts are. They learn controlled strength. That is when you have become the best that you can be. And that is who we all need to be. We need to be able to do like Abraham did. He was a great description, a great illustration of what meekness is. Abraham from the Bible. He was seemingly an elderly man. His nephew Lot was taken. And he mounted up a posse of 300 or so people enslaved five kingdoms. Meekness is not weakness. The better understanding of meekness is a sheathed weapon with the knowledge and the strength and the wisdom of how and when it should be used. Right now we're at the point of legal battles. Everyone 
must stand up. When we come together, we will not be stopped. There are more of us than them. And this is what happens with weakness. I'm sorry, I already played that before I know, but I couldn't help myself. This is likely a better example of what strength is. And this happened this past week. Please tell me, uh, apparently one of the whistleblowers is brave enough to come forward and give a name or I would not have allowed you to come. To yes, Senator. So we've got three whistleblowers who've given me permission at this point to share their name. Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Teresa Long, D-O-M-P-H, Dr. Samuel Sigloff, and Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Peter Chambers, DO and flight surgeon. All three have, att- have given me this data I have declarations from all three. The state is under penalty. Uh, this is under penalty of perjury. We intend to submit this to the courts. Uh, we have substantial data showing that uh, we saw, for example, uh, miscarriages increased by 300% over the five-year average, almost. Uh, we saw almost 300% increase in cancer over the five-year average. Cancer is not being talked about except for by Dr. Ryan Cole. Thank you, Dr. Uh, We saw, this one's amazing, neurological issues which would affect our pilots. Over a thousand percent increase. A thousand. Ten times. That's ten times rate and obviously that resonates. 83,000 per year, I'm sorry, 82,000 per year to 863,000 in one year. Dr. Corey, thank you so much for your stance on the corruption. That's precisely what it is. They know this. And Senator... Uh, when these doctors are attacked, not necessarily the people in this room, I'm give, not giving names, they call me. I'm the one dealing with the medical boards. I'm the one watching the witch hunts. I'm the one fighting them off, and I'm the one telling them where to go. I'm going to keep doing that. Thank you, Thomas Renz, Esquire. This episode, I'm going to be talking about diet. Now, I know many people may not like what I say, and that's okay. I'm not here to, to have you like me. I'd prefer for you to like me. Uh, There may be things that you may disagree with, and that's okay. I'm here to open your eyes to things that you may not have heard of before. So let's talk about what we eat. So as a osteopath, it's a it's a different philosophy of medicine. So it's it's the whole idea is to look for health rather than to treat disease, and that's what's put me in this position. Now, about two years ago, I started this journey of trying to figure out what is the best way to find the optimal fuel for humans, and I was able to discover some physicians that have already started this journey have already gone quite a ways down it and have very good uh, resources. Now, I want to make it clear that no- nothing I'm saying today should be construed as medical advice. Medical advice is only given within a patient-physician relationship and within a clinical encounter, usually done in office, can be done over teleconference. So I want to make it clear this is not medical advice that I'm giving you. I am merely trying to show you a different way of doing things, something that may work very well, and I'll give some anecdotes that explain how well it's worked for some of my patients in the past. What have humans been eating for thousands and thousands of years? Let's compare and contrast that to what humans are eating now, right? So so many people, so many doctors are saying, well, we should do a plant-based diet. When in human history have people eaten plants in large scale? Almost never. Typically, plants are reserved plant bodies, and I want to make it very clear, so when I say a vegetable, I'm talking about the body of the plant. When I'm talking about fruit, which is very different than a vegetable, when I'm talking about the fruit, that is what the plant wants you to eat. It typically has seeds in it or on it, and that's how you can tell the difference between a fruit and a vegetable. Fruit has seeds in it or on it. Vegetables do not have seeds in them. 
and then seeds are a different category as well. In human history, people have eaten fruit. They rarely eat the vegetable. And we see this. Look with your own eyes and, and your own mind and, and look at people who lived in, let's say, Alaska, the natives that lived in Alaska that have lived there for thousands of years. Let's look at the natives that have lived in the plains in the United States. Let's look at the, the natives who have the Bedouin who lived out in the desert out in the Middle East. Their diet consists mostly of animal products. Animal products are the only thing that are available in all seasons. So I, I was living in Alaska for three years. It was clearly evident that there are not enough plants to sustain human life there. There may be a few raspberries or blueberries available, um, typically only for a month or two, and that's if you're lucky enough to eat them before the rabbits do. There are, in fact, other plants that are very poisonous that make berries. I'm currently living out in the, in the desert. Plants out here don't want you to get near them. They don't want you to touch them. There's mesquite here. They have spines. There's prickly pear. There's barrel cactus. There's saguaro cactus. There's all these different types of cactus. It's clearly evident that these plants do not want you to touch them. It kind of makes sense if you look at this from, from a survival of the fittest standpoint. So animals can fight you off. They can keep you from eating them until they're dead. Plants, on the other hand, they can't run, they can't hide, they can't fight. But there's other ways of defending themselves that they can do. They can make spikes. So like think of cactus, even a fruit. So think of this fruit called, you know, the chili peppers, different types of hot peppers. It's clearly a self-defense mechanism to keep whatever it is from eating the pepper too quickly. We as humans are strange and we like those types of things, although it's probably not good for our, our gut system. And then there's other ways that plants defend themselves. Slower, more insidious ways. One example might be soy. Soy has a phytochemical in it that mimics estrogen. Let's say there's a field of soy and there's a cow that stumbles out in that field, gets lost out there and starts eating it. It becomes sterile from all the estrogen or all of the phytoestrogen that it takes in. And it works like estrogen and it stops uh, ovulation. And so now the cow gets older and it dies and now there's no more cows. But you know what continues to live is the soy. That is the long game. Another example is apples. You know, apples want you to, they, you know, apple trees make apples and they want you to eat the apple. They don't want you to eat their seeds. Their seeds can contain cyanide. And so it's, it's obvious that plants don't want you to eat their seeds. How many people do you know that have problems with, let's say, gluten, for example? That is a protein that is in wheat that bothers a lot of people's GI tract. That is a way that the plant has been able to defend itself. Let's look at broccoli. Broccoli is not good for the thyroid. Let's look at spinach. Spinach makes lots of oxalates. I have some guinea pigs in my house. We cannot feed them spinach or they will get kidney stones so bad from the oxalates that they'll die from it. Now humans, some humans can eat a lot of spinach and it not cause problems. But some people will get kidney stones from eating foods rich in oxalates. Not everyone makes oxalate stones. Not all stones are made from oxalates. But if you make kidney stones and they're from oxalates, I would have you consider decreasing your amount of plant matter intake. So now that we've, we've established that, it's clearly evident that plants don't want you to eat them. But they do want you to eat their fruit. And the reason they want you to eat the fruit is so that you can spread their seeds, so they can continue their species, which makes sense. Everything on earth wants to continue its species. Nothing on earth wants to get eaten. Whether that be me, whether that be a bear, whether that be whatever. And we'll defend ourselves. 
And, and so now let's talk about seeds for a moment. Seeds are basically, seeds, nuts, grain, things of that nature, are the, the future offspring, so to speak, and kind of an easy way to understand, of the plant. And so because they don't want you to eat it, sometimes they put toxins and chemicals in there, like cyanide. Let's look at uh, almond. It, it comes from the stone fruits. Think of uh, nectarines, things like that, that have uh, a pit with a big seed in the center. And if you crack that pit open, uh, like a peach pit, it'll often look like an almond. Well, humans, we've been able to breed almonds to a point where there's not enough cyanide in there to kill us. And so that's why we eat almonds. We think they're incredibly healthy, but a lot of people who have, let's say, IBS have problems with almonds, including almond flour. And it makes sense because the plant wants to defend itself. It doesn't want you eating its seeds. So what I've discussed so far is just the tip of the iceberg of things that the plant puts has in its body or puts in its, its body that keep it from getting eaten. There, there are some really good videos, and I'll have a link in the show description below, that uh, Dr. Ken Berry does. And Dr. Ken Berry is a board-certified family physician. He's actually a fellow in the American Academy of Family Physicians. And he has a video called 10 Autoimmune Disorders. He shows you what the compounds look like and how there's an amino acid in plant, in a certain plant, let's say legume, that looks very similar to the amino acid that we use. And, and our body can use it because it's very similar in structure, but it's different. And for some people, that is enough to trigger an autoimmune disorder. Not everybody. Not everybody's going to get autoimmune disorder that eats peanuts. But some people, it bothers them. And if it's not the optimal food for your body, you have to ask yourself, do I want to put something into my machine, my body, that's not the, the best possible fuel out there? And some people are not going to be able to give up some things, and I'm not asking you to give up everything. I'm not asking everyone to go on a meat-only diet. That's not workable for everybody. But what we can do is we can start cutting the garbage food out of what you're eating. It's obvious the garbage food is anything processed, right? Anything deep fried, anything that uses man-made oils. Remember I was talking about seeds and how they're, they're not typically good for you. Those are typically your polyunsaturated fatty acids. The only time humans would have eaten them in the past was just before winter, which is actually very beneficial because these polyunsaturated fatty acids seem to work like signaling molecules that make us slightly insulin resistant, which is perfect just before winter. Because then you pack on a little bit of fat that will last you through the entire winter. Then when spring-summer rolls around, you're going to start eating saturated fat again, animal fat. That saturated fat seems to work like a signaling molecule that makes you more sensitive to insulin, helps you get rid of, helps you get rid of that fat. And so this is kind of counterculture and counterintuitive. But if you look back in, in history and what humans ate, it makes sense. You want to lose fat, you eat fat. You want to gain muscle, you go to the gym. You don't go to the gym to lose weight. You eat fat to lose fat. And the fat that I'm specifically talking about is saturated fat. Well, Doc, what about my, what about my cholesterol? I've heard that if my cholesterol goes too high, I'm going to die of a heart attack. Well, let's look back in the history of that. When you look into Ansel Keys, Ansel Keys was the one who came up with this LDL theory that if your LDL is high, you're going to get a heart attack. He was a pathologist. And the way he found this out was he cut someone open and he looked at their arteries and he said, man, this looks like LDL. I bet it's LDL. Quick, tell everybody it's LDL. Does that sound like science? I mean, it sounds like the science we're doing these days with, with COVID and all that. It sounds just like that. In fact, exactly. Surprisingly, now that I'm thinking about it, it's exactly like that kind of science, which is not science. That's like bro science. That's like, hey, man, what do you think of this? You think 10 masks will work better than one? Bro science. Okay, so he did that. He started a campaign. And then before anything could be validated, 
laws in the United States were changed that helped push that narrative. And then you had companies, or let me restate that, even organizations that started pushing that narrative. Lots of organizations that are funded by food. You think Big Pharma is bad, look at food. If your eyes are being opened these days to Big Pharma and, and the potential corruption involved, look at Big Food. It's bigger than what the tobacco industry was covering up. Don't take my word for it. Please go look it up for yourself. As people start eating more polyunsaturated fats, and instead of becoming a, a small portion of your daily intake, like almost insignificant, or you get a lot more unsaturated fat in your diet because every single processed food, any package that's out there, I can, in the United States at least, I can almost guarantee that it's going to have some sort of hydrogenated oil, some sort of corn oil, soy oil, some sort of polyunsaturated fatty acid. Again, and that works like a signaling molecule that goes to your fat cells and makes them insulin resistant, which leads to blood pressure problems, weight gain, diabetes, and all the sundry problems that come along with that. Which, in fact, when you have more fat cells, your risk of COVID in inflammation after the you know first seven days of the infection, that, that cytokine storm, it seems to be worse because those cytokines are made by the, the interleukin-6 that causes the bad cytokine storm that tends to kill people is made by fat cells. So you don't want your fat cells to be nice, plump, and, plump and, you don't want your fat cells to be nice, plump, and juicy. You want your, your fat cells to be svelte, to be slim and trim. Fat cells are not just little storage packets in your body. They're actually working parts of the endocrine system. They send signals out. And, and they send messages out, and they receive messages, and they change their function depending on what messages they receive. Again, that's why it's important. And you start cutting out the polyunsaturated fatty acids so that you become more insulin, more insulin sensitive. An example of this, I've had two patients that have put their diabetes into complete remission. So the first one was a patient I saw during the start of the whole COVID, and he hadn't seen a doctor in years. And his hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month average of your blood glucose, his hemoglobin A1C was greater than 11, which means it was so high we couldn't measure how high it was. A normal hemoglobin A1C should be less than 5.6. Should be less, and he was over 11. Couldn't measure, too high to measure. And within six months, and, and because it was kind of the beginning of this journey, he he was started on some medications and I had a pharmacist. He, he also helped me put and he put the patient on some insulin for a little while. And we got the patient off of insulin, which was a good thing to get him off the insulin. And within six months, this patient was completely controlled with a hemoglobin A1C of 5.5 in under six months. Stable and on absolutely no medications for his diabetes. Now, let me tell you about the other patient that I've had astounding success with. This other patient, he's a man, he was using 80 units of insulin every single day. That would be enough to kill me and about three other people in the room. That's how much insulin this is. And he was using 80 units every single day. And any patient that is on insulin, I don't let them go on either carnivore, which I think is the best way for humans to eat, keto, next best. Uh, I don't let them do any of those changes unless they get a what we call a continuous glucose monitor. A continuous glucose monitor is a little thing that sticks under your arm, and it checks the interstitial glucose, which is a good approximation or, you know, it's, it's about what's close to the serum glucose or the glucose that's floating, the sugar that's floating around in your blood. And, and the reason that's so important is because this patient who was using 80 units of insulin every single day 
within the first week, he went down to 10 units of insulin. So if he continued using that same amount of insulin, he would have killed himself. Like very easily, he would have gone into, gone into a coma and he would have started seizing and he would have died because he would have starved his brain of, of glucose. So that's why it's so critical to have that continuous glucose monitor. But anyhow, so he, he went from 80 units down to 10 units in the first week. Within two months, he was off all of his diabetic medications. And then at the, at the three-month check, his hemoglobin A1C was stable. It was at 5.6. It was a miracle, an absolute miracle. And, and some other things that I've been learning through this whole thing too is it's, it's not just the A1C that's important. It's how much insulin does your body need to get the response that it has. And, and so we, the way we measure this is called a fasting insulin. Your fasting insulin should be anywhere between 3 and 8. Anywhere above 8 is some insulin resistance. Once you're getting above 20, you're having some significant insulin resistance. So I had this young lady come. Uh, she's probably in her third decade, so about 30 years old or so. And we did all the normal labs, plus the few extra that I do. And her hemoglobin A1C was 4.9, which is great. And previously, I would have been like, yeah, you're great. Go on, get out of here. Don't worry about it. However, this time I also did a fasting insulin. And her fasting insulin, again, 3 to 8 is normal. Greater than 20 is some significant insulin resistance. Her insulin was 49. We were able to see off in the horizon and see the tip of the iceberg before we ever got near it. And now that patient and I could have that, that conversation, how we can change your lifestyle, so that you never get diabetes, so that you become more metabolically healthy, which is the most important thing in the world is to become metabolically healthy. Some patients don't lose weight right away, and that's fine. It's not about weight loss. It's about metabolic health. It's about making your body, giving your body the best, the best possible fuel for the machine that is your body. I've had two patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disorder. Both of those patients not only had all of their symptoms resolve, but both of them were able to come off of all of their rheumatoid arthritis medications. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to say that they were cured, because I don't know if you ever can be cured of rheumatoid arthritis. But to not be symptomatic, that's huge. I had another patient that had sarcoidosis. It's another autoimmune disorder. And this patient had terrible migraines and terrible headaches all the time and terrible low back pain. She wasn't able to do carnivore. So she did the next best thing, the next thing that she could do, where we could meet together and try something. And so she tried keto, the ketogenic diet, which is low-carb, high animal fat, and protein. The protein should always be about the same, no matter how you're eating. But she was able to reduce her pain so much that not only could she go up a flight of stairs where she couldn't before, but she was able to lay on the floor and play with her grandkids. That's huge. That, that You can't imagine how big that is. So what am I talking about? There's different ways of eating. So I think, you know, like, if, if you're not able to make any changes, at least try, try to take the garbage out of your diet. That includes any sort of processed foods. Okay, so that's, that's anything with any hydrogenated oils, anything with processed oils, anything with high fructose corn syrup, almost everything with a package. Now, that might be a bit much for you. Maybe you can't do that completely. That's fine. Try taking a little bit out today or a little bit out of one meal. Buy less of those, pra buy less of those packaged processed products. The next step up would be, so let's, you, let's say you get all the processed garbage out of your food. I'm going to call it garbage because it's not food. We shouldn't be eating it. 
It's not right for the human body. If we look at the human body as if it were a machine, we want to put the best possible fuel into this machine to get the best possible outcome. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to cure all diseases, but we might improve a lot of them and we might cure some of them. So next step up, let's cut the vegetables out. Oh, but doc, I need, I need my fiber. I got to have my fiber. Oh, I, you know, I just, I don't have a good BM if I don't get my fiber. Well, have you ever tried not eating vegetables at all? I used to do colonoscopies and I would tell people to eat more fiber. When you cut the fiber out, the loose stools and the constipation issues typically resolve. And I'll get into a little more of that in the future. But it's interesting how fiber got us into this problem with constipation. More fiber is not going to be the fix. That's just like masking and shots seem to make things worse. Well, more masks and more shots don't make things better. You know, I always want to look at things with a very logical, easy to understand way of looking at them. And if fiber makes you constipated, the more fiber is not going to help. Do you think ancient man was picking up a, a stick and chewing on it because, man, I just need fiber? No. He ate fat and he ate meat. And so the next step up would be keto. Now, keto is not eating things with, with the word keto written on it. Right? If you're buying something with the word keto on it, then you probably shouldn't be buying it because it's usually a way to trick you into buying something, which what keto really is, is eating 20 or less grams of carbohydrates every day. Now, for some people, they can do it and they do great at it. But I'll tell you, I, I do not have the mental capacity to be counting carbs throughout the day. It's not going to happen. So what, what's the next step then? So the next step would be carnivore. Carnivore is not eating carbs. Now, do a couple carbs sneak in? Sure, probably. I probably get a, There's probably some days where I eat maybe five or maybe even 20 carbs in that day. right? Because we, we don't want to be so strict about this that we can't live life and can't enjoy life. But once you've improved your health so much, it's not difficult to eat this way. So it's been next month, it'll be two years since I've had a vegetable. And I'll tell you, I'm the best health I've ever been in my entire life. So people that tell you that, oh, you got to have vegetables. You have to eat the rainbow. Really? Do you really have to eat all the colors of the rainbow? Do you really have to eat more vegetables? Who's telling you to eat more vegetables? Who's telling you to eat this artificial sludge that's, that's marketed as a meat alternative? Look into that. See who's, who owns these factories. Is it the same people making the vaccine or who have money tied into the vaccine? It's interesting, isn't it? Also, many doctors are telling you to eat more plants, eat more, you know, eat a plant-based diet. Is it helping? I'd say the only patients that I've ever seen that needed iron infusion and did not have any, you know, gastrointestinal surgeries that would change their ability to absorb iron. The only patients that needed iron infusions were those that never ate meat, any kind of meat at all. But do you think ancient human walked around the earth going, well, ah, I'm getting a little tired. Ooh, you, oh, look at my hands. They're, they're like white as a sheet. You, let me go get my iron infusion. No. Another interesting thing is 100 years ago, do you think there was ever a, a vegan? I'm not talking about vegetarian, but a vegan on the face of the earth. No. And the reason there was no vegans then is because there are things in animals that can't be found anywhere else. B12 is a great example. B12 is not found in any plant. Without B12, you become anemic, and then you begin to have neuropsych problems that mimic schizophrenia. So that's why there was no vegans 100 years ago, because they couldn't go to the local drugstore and buy B12 supplement. They had to eat animals. Even the vegetarians, they would eat eggs, and they would eat fish, and that has B12 in it, and it has vitamin A in it. Oh, that's another fun one, vitamin A. We're told, oh, we'll eat carrots, because the beta-carotene is great for your eyes. Really? Beta-carotene is two vitamin A molecules stuck end-to-end. If you take vitamin A and you take two of them and you stick them into N, that's beta-carotene. Some people, some human bodies have the ability to, to break that and to get vitamin A from it. Some people cannot. 
Vitamin A is essential. It's absolutely needed. It's found in eggs. It's found in, in liver. It's found all over animals in their bodies. It is not found in carrots. It is not found in anything orange. The beta carotene that you see can actually build up. And I, I had a, a friend in residency, and he loved carrots. This is back before I knew anything about eating meat and how important it was. We looked at his hands one day, and he looked jaundice. He, his hands were, were orange. And it turns out it's because he ate too many. He ate a lot of carrots. And I've had one patient who was a vegan, and her hands were also orange, like, like, that, like a leather-looking orange, like a tanned, artificial tan orange. And it was the beta-carotene that was building up in the skin. And eventually that'll come out. But it can, lead up to tox- it can get up to toxic levels, which can cause neurologic issues. So that whole idea that, oh, well, you, need beta-carot- you don't need beta-carotene to help you at night. Carrots don't help your night vision. Vitamin A helps your vi- night vision. Vitamin A is found in liver. Vitamin A is found in eggs. So ancient humans, they ate animals and they'd eat fruit. And if you do a little research, you know, go to, let's say, DuckDuckGo. And I say specifically DuckDuckGo because you shouldn't be using the other one. The other one hides information from you. And and this is not the time to be hiding information from anyone. Yeah, that's right. I'm talking about Google. Google hides all sorts of information from you. So don't use them. What's fun to do sometimes is look on Google and look on DuckDuckGo. Sorry, quick aside. All right, so you, you go look up. Look up the term essential fatty acids. It's such a thing. There are things that humans have to intake because we can't make them. That's what makes them essential. There are essential amino acids, meaning we can't make those amino acids. We have to ingest them. We have to eat them. Well, just just try looking up. I'll give you a moment here to search for essential carbohydrate. Okay, I'm going to quit giving you time because it doesn't exist. You will find nothing that says essential carbohydrate, meaning your body does not require carbohydrates. Some people do better when they have a little bit of carb every day. Like it might help them exercise a little better, but that doesn't mean your body needs them. They're not essential. And you can have them if you want. You don't have to have them if you don't want. But now let's say you're, you're eating an unhealthy diet that's rich in polyunsaturated fatty acids. Those polyunsaturated fatty acids are, they're like little, a good way to describe it is like they go inside the little gears in your, in your metabolic system and they just gum everything up. Now, you add a bunch of carbs on top of that. That's like dumping fuel on a fire. And you, you want to get diabetes? That's how you get diabetes. You want to have blood pressure problems? That's how you do it. You want to become metabolically unhealthy. You eat lots of carbs and have lots of polyunsaturated fatty acids. Now, you can eat lots of carbs. Otherwise, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have problems. Some people do have problems. Some people don't. But you add in the polyunsaturated fatty acids. That's, that is gasoline on the fire. Okay. So, I started talking earlier about Ansel Keys and lipids and how LDL and and cholesterol lead to heart attack. And I don't think I completed that thought, so let me come back to that for a moment. We saw how Ansel Keys came up with, and and don't take my word for it, please go research this yourself, look at it yourself. Ansel Keys came up with this theory that was never proven and since has not panned out to be accurate, that LDL increases your risk of heart attack and stroke. Now, what we do know is that triglycerides increase your risk of heart attack and stroke. Triglycerides lead you to metabolic unhealth. Triglycerides raise in, in the bloodstream when you have lots of carbohydrates. Triglycerides raise in the bloodstream when you have lots of alcohol. So I had a patient, and just kind of for reference, typically triglycerides are going to be less than 150. I had a patient who's like 30s, mid-30s. His triglycerides were typically 600 to 800. That is so high. He was at risk of his pancreas get, getting inflamed which has a 20% risk of dying with every hospital admission that every time your pancreas gets inflamed. And so we talked about carnivore, and he did it for one month. 
And after one month of carnival with no medications to lower his triglycerides, his triglycerides went down to 120. I know people whose triglycerides are in the 30s, which is amazing. And their risk of heart attack stroke go way down. Now their LDL goes up. But doc, I'm going to have a heart attack, are you? Where's the evidence? I was listening to a lecture done by a, a cardiologist out of Houston, and he was, seemed to be a big proponent of keto. He was describing this study that was done in Italy, and it was age 65 and older. And if their total cholesterol was greater than 250, then their all-cause mortality, or you know, all reasons to die, was decreased. They had less risk of lung infections, less risk of heart attacks and strokes, less risk of cancer. And the reason behind this is LDL is not just a clump of fat that floats around your, your arteries waiting to plug you up and kill you. No, it's much more complex than that. LDL is actually part of the immune system that gathers things up and takes them away. And here's an interesting thing. I didn't understand this at the time, but I had been blessed to have influenza two years in a row after having the flu shot two years in a row. So guess how many more flu shots I'll be having in the future? I don't have to let you guess. It's none. I'll never have another flu shot again. But anyhow, so I got a flu shot, got, got the flu that year. And the next year I got flu, had a flu shot. Or had a flu shot and then got influenza. And so the first thing I noticed when I became ill both of those times, because it, it hits you like a ton of bricks, like you're perfectly fine and then just bam, you feel terrible. It would make sense that your body would need energy because it's going through this Manhattan-style project to figure out how to fight this, this enemy that's inside of it trying to destroy it. But that's not, it doesn't want to take in energy. The first thing your body wants to do is make you fast. Stop eating. That does a couple things. That instantly raises your LDL in your body. It helps you fight infection. It lowers the glucose that's floating around in your body. So now, glucose is an easy source to, of food. So if there's bacteria, it loves glucose. If there's any sort of, you know, if you had cancer, cancer loves glucose. And we've known this since like, I think it was 1939, that cancer loves glucose preferentially. And so when you decrease the amount of glucose that's floating around your bloodstream, you're helping stop things from growing, stop bacteria from growing, stop cancer from growing. But you're also energizing your immune system. You're allowing it to work better. Those two years of having influenza in a row is like, wow, that's interesting. That doesn't seem to make sense. But now that I understand the pathophysiology or the mechanism behind why I would stop eating in, as soon as I became ill, it makes more sense. I, you know, I don't know if you have any sort of religious background. I'm a Christian. And in the Bible, in the Judeo-Christian Bible, there is evidence that fasting is good for you. There's also evidence that eating meat is good for you. What the fasting does is seem to help the immune system. Here's more evidence that LDL is... Now, this is anecdotal evidence that LDL uh, does influence infections, but I had a fairly young, he was in his early 30s, patient, soldier, had high LDL. The doc that he saw before me said, oh, goodness, this is terrible. You're going to have a heart attack and die, so let's get you on a statin medication. So ever since this guy had been on a statin medication, he had um, confusion of the mind, which is a side effect, you know, some confusion and cloudiness. And that has to do with the brain is the fattiest organ in the body, and if you're altering how lipids and cholesterol is, is metabolized in the body, then yeah, it makes sense. You're kind of like taking the wheels off the car. Eh, the car's not going to work as well if you take the tires off. Another interesting thing is I had noticed this. This guy had a couple of urinary tract infections. He had a lung infection. He had a couple of abscesses that were fairly substantial. All of those started after starting the statin. And he never had any of those problems prior to starting the statin, which makes sense now, right? So if the LDL is part of the immune system and we lower LDL to below normal levels, 
what's going to happen? You're going to see more infections. And that's exactly what happened to that young gentleman. We don't even know what a normal LDL is because we've never looked at it in people who ate human-appropriate diets. We've only looked at it and said, oh, that must be why they had the heart attack and stroke. We didn't look at the triglycerides. Other things that led to heart attacks and strokes, we just looked at LDL. It's much more complex than that. You know, Ken Berry, in one, of his pod, in one of his YouTube videos, he has another man on called, his name is Paul Saladino. Paul Saladino wrote the book Carnivore Code. I encourage you to get it and read it. Talks a lot about what I've already talked about. And in that YouTube video, Ken Berry says that his LDL is around 320, which sounds like, oh, goodness, you're going to die. No, no, no. It's part of the immune system, remember. It's normal part of human physiology. Saladino, he's in his early mid-30s, and his dad had had a heart attack at the same age he was at the time he was on that video. And so he certainly did not want to have a heart attack. His father survived it, but I think it was fairly substantial in his life. Saladino said that his LDL was 500, and he had a calcium score done, and it was zero. Calcium score, the higher the number, the higher the risk of, of having calcified plaques, which means higher risk of heart attack. Another doctor out there, Sean Baker, S-H-A-W-N, Sean Baker. He has meetrx.com. I encourage you to go check him out. Check out Sean Baker, 1967, on his Instagram. And he's been doing carnivore for about five years now. He's had a calcium score done every year. Zero. No calcified plaques in his heart. Now, could he have a plaque that's not calcified that could rupture and cause a heart attack? Sure, yeah, anybody could. But that's, that, that's going outside of the norm. If you get a chance to look at Sean Baker, he's in his mid-50s. He puts up videos of him exercising. One of the videos that is stuck in my head, he was doing a 24-inch box jump. He had a 60-pound dumbbell in each hand and a, and a weighted vest on and just grinding them out like it was no problem at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm 37 years old, and I don't, I'm certain I could not have done that jump. Eating meat is not going to hurt you. In fact, that is the most human-appropriate diet. And possibly eating some fruit during the springtime or multiple times throughout the year. Honey is another thing. And, and so these three guys that I've told you about, Sean Baker, Paul Saladino, Ken Berry, many of them have similar ideas. You know, they disagree on some things. Saladino likes honey. Berry thinks it's bee vomit. Both of them are not wrong. It is bee vomit. It's also good. Some other books to further your reading on this. So I already mentioned The Carnivore Code by Paul Saladino. I encourage you to, to look at that. Give stats and he gives numbers and he, and he talks about specific plants like turmeric. Turmeric is not actually an antioxidant like it's sold as. It's an oxidant and it causes oxidation. And then your body's overreaction is how you get the antioxidation response. That's a very, very in-depth good book. If you're just kind of opening your eyes to everything that's going on, Ken Berry is a great resource. He wrote a book called Lies My Doctor Told Me, Medical Myths That Can Harm Your Health. I encourage you to go check it out or just check him out on YouTube. Sean Baker wrote a book called The Carnivore Diet. Take a look at his book. Talks about nutrition in there. Talks about what's about cholesterol, about what's in meat, the different vitamins in meat. Like, oh, but you're going to get scurvy, Dr. Sigaloff. No, I haven't got scurvy yet. You know why people think you'll get scurvy? is because the sailors back in the 18, 17, 1800s, they get scurvy because they didn't have vitamin C. They also weren't eating meat. There is vitamin C in meat. There's a lot in the liver. Liver is a superfood if there ever was one. But if you're eating a lot of glucose, glucose blocks vitamin C from entering the, the cells. And so if you're eating a lot of glucose, if you're doing a standard American diet, yeah, you're probably not getting enough vitamin C because you're eating a lot of sugar. There's sugar in everything. But if you cut the sugar out, whatever vitamin C that's in the meat is going to be enough for you. Dr. Baker does not have scurvy. Another really good book is Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat by 
one thing that's really good about this book is they talk about the different types of meat, right? So like grass-fed, grass-finished versus grain-fed, grain-finished. And the difference is so minimal, there's almost no difference. Yeah, one may taste a lot better. The grass-fed, grass-finished is probably going to taste a lot better. But let's say you don't have the money to buy that kind of meat. Get whatever meat they have in Walmart that is meat and only meat. Here's another little way that you can kind of tell that eating meat is a good thing for your body and how people don't want you doing it. In America, we were told back at the beginning of the year that you may be limited to one hamburger per month, one pound of hamburger per month. I eat a pound in a day, but they don't want you eating it. Why are they trying to control meat? Why are they driving up the price of meat? Who's doing it? I don't know. That's for you to find out. I'm here to help you think of questions that maybe you haven't thought of. But why would they want to try and control meat? Why do they want the price of meat skyrocketing when they have these fake artificial meats that don't taste anything the same? And just because you have some of the amino acids in there doesn't mean that you have everything that's actually in there. There was this article that came out. It was written October of 19, published in January of 20. It talks about creatine, creatinine, 4-hydroproline, some other compounds that are in red meat. And it says that as little as 30 grams of red meat a day can help optimize the immune system to help you fight infections to include coronaviruses. That class of virus is the common cold. It was published in February of 2020. came out before the pandemic started. But have you ever once heard Anthony Fauci say anything about eating meat to help your immune system? No. But they're not telling you to eat more meat. Another really good book to kind of help you understand the whole idea of polyunsaturated fat versus saturated fat is called The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Teichels. This is a very interesting book, and I encourage you to, to look up Nina Teichels or read her book or both, but it helps you understand why polyunsaturated fats are bad and why saturated fats are good. Now, before we go, I will share an example of how courage is contagious. So my wife sings at the praise and worship team on, at church. There is a man who is sitting in the front. I'm not going to give his real name, but we'll call him Ezekiel, which means God strengthens. The entire time they were singing for about four songs, this man was standing in the front row standing, holding his oxygen tank. Towards the end of the service, the pastor invited up one of the elders. The elder came up and he said, I was thinking of not coming to church today because my arthritis was bothering me, but I'm glad I did because when I sat there and I looked at Ezekiel standing in strength, I know that he was discharged from the hospital earlier this week and he's standing there with his oxygen. If he can do that, then my arthritis shouldn't be bothering me and I can be here. Now that man we're calling Ezekiel he even encouraged the entire praise and worship team as they looked at him and saw him worshiping. This man, we're calling Ezekiel, had no idea all this was going on. He just did what he was designed to do. Now is the time to be Ezekiel to those around you, to stand up in strength. As more of us stand, we will make courage more contagious than fear.